Welcome to episode 92 of Dialoga, a podcast between two friends about the latest in society, politics, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. I'm Stephanie Tangkilisan. And I'm Sweetie Lee. And this week, we have a very special guest. Levy Sunny, who is a good friend of mine. So Levy is the CEO of Nala Genetics, a genetics testing company that has switched over to a lot of testing for COVID. So this episode, we're going to talk about COVID testing, a little bit about an explanation about the difference between PCR viral test and the rapid test, the antibody test. And we're going to also talk about how Indonesia's public and private sector is handling this problem, as well as the moral ethical question of like, should you get tested or, or not? You know, it's a general conversation where we talk about public-private partnership, how companies, private companies are stepping in to make sure their essential employees are being tested and safe, and just the state of testing in Indonesia. So we're excited to have this conversation with Levy and here's to it. Today we have a very special guest, Lavana Sani, who is a dear friend of ours and a really badass woman with her own company that focuses on genetics and testing. Uh, Levy, welcome to the show and thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do and um, how's it been going with what you do these days? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I am the co-founder and CEO for Knowledge Genetics which is a genetic testing company primarily focused on drug response. So we develop genetic testing and software for doctors such that they would be able to personalize your prescription based on their patient's uh, genetic profiles. Recently, due to COVID, PCR testing has been used for other uh, screening purposes for detection of COVID-19, so we've been helping a little bit on that as well. I'm kind of curious, um, for some of our listeners who might not be, like myself, who might not be familiar to what what does it actually entails when we're talking about genetic testing, can you give us like a brief summary or some kind of like rundown of what does it really mean to do genetic testing and sort of like the the science behind the work that you're doing? Yeah, so, so the DNA is in the human body, it's like a blueprint a series of bases is what the unit of a DNA is mm -hmm. and it kind of codes what your proteins and what your physiology and your characteristics would be like and the idea of genetic testing is that certain mutations or variations in your gen you know in genetic profile will sort of determine you know certain characteristics about you mm -hmm. uh, whether it be you know the color of your eyes or your hair or whatever so genetic testing has different chemistries and and usually it comes in, in the tangible form it's a machine but um, our technologies that we use is something that is very robust and has been around for a long time it's called the qpcr method um, it is a way of genotyping or um, sort of reading the genetic um, sequence mm -hmm. where you try to replicate the region of the DNA that you're very much interested in. 
And this is using a natural mechanism, the way that, you know, the same enzyme would be replicating the DNA in your body when your cell tries to replicate. So you mimic that natural reaction in this test tube, and then you create sort of anchor points for them to start replicating your region of interest. And then the more copies that you make, thus uh, the machine will sort of picks up that uh, signal either as a fluorescence or other ways that the machine would detect it. And that presence of fluorescence is basically what you say as, oh, this genetic profile will have a variant versus not having a variant because mm-hmm. of that successful replication or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. So that is, you know, genotyping using qPCR. <laughs> and then uh, obviously there are so many more like cooler chemistries out there that now you can sequence the whole genome like just a, a day and, and do it really, really fast and really cheap. Um, but uh, we focus on the first technology because it's cheaper and more robust and it's much more used in clinical settings. And that's what we wanted to do. And what's the benefits for that for like the average person, you know, who is the average kind of customer and how would that help them in their lives? Yeah, so before COVID, um, a lot of these machines are being used for detecting uh, bacterial and viral genetic material. Mm. So influenza is already being tested using the same machine. You would detect the presence of bacterial DNA or viral uh, RNA and you'll be able to diagnose someone whether or not they have, you know, this this disease. Um, for our purpose, we're very interested in human genotyping, which means that we would read human DNA instead of any other bacterial or viral or other things. Um, and for our purpose, um, we would, for example, be able to determine certain metabolizer um, enzymes in your body and whether or not that metabolizer enzyme has a very strong activity because of certain variants in your body mm-hmm. or quite a low activity and that would basically determine how much drugs or how, how much dosage you would need to take for that particular drug or whether or not you'll have certain responses to the drugs that may be different from the general population and there are basically anything you can think of there's genetic testing you know has caught on to the mainstream and companies like 23andme and other companies are using this basically a uh, similar method to correlate to any characteristic you want in your life basically because genes have this very interesting quality of it never changing and also um, everyone being very very unique so it's your most personal identifier about yourself is your dna right um, everyone has a unique DNA. And so that uh, quality then becomes very interesting if you're trying to understand something about yourself. So a lot of people have tried to correlate that with like, you know, back when we just first started out reading genes, like how maybe it would tell you how much you would believe in God or like how much you would cheat on your spouse, you know, crazy <laughs> stuff like that. Um, we don't do that at Dollar Genetics, <laughs> but um, we, you know, we kind of do more the boring but hopefully like life-saving parts of (laughs) genotyping but uh yeah
to be completely honest, because I am a, a commoner. Commoner. <laughs> when I first hear about genetic testing, it's really, I mean, my first impulse is like 23andMe, and then it's like, oh, all my friends took that test in order to figure out their ancestry and see how much of, what percentage of, you know, Asian that they are. Yeah, But that's obviously, true. it is way more beyond than that sort of like entertainment in a way. <laughs> yeah. So it's really fascinating to hear the science behind it. I have a question for you too, because we've been doing this research also in our company. Does genetic is genetic testing a word that is positive or negative in your mind? Positive. Positive. Interesting. But I sometimes feel like it's, and I was curious to hear about your sort of like the the thinking behind your methods, right? It sometimes feels a lot like research instead of necessarily quote unquote medicine or something that can be used to diagnose or treat something immediately. Mm-hmm. My experience or like my very small knowledge of genetics, it feels very much like it's a retroactive kind of move or like, you know, it's a research move where you're just trying to learn more, but not necessarily to act on that knowledge yet. Yeah. But then again, I uh, I hope I'm wrong. And I, and I probably sound like an idiot in front of you. <laughs> no, no, that's a very... Um... No, that's a very important distinction as well, because when we created the company, we also needed to determine what type of um, innovation slash research that we want to do and how it would translate into a product. Mm. So what I also just learned, like when I was working in Singapore um, as a research officer in this Genome Institute of Singapore, and they, uh, essentially there's two types of research in general. And I'm sure there's like many different gradients out of, out of this. But in my mind, there's basic research and then there's translational research. Mm. So basic research is when you're trying to sort of describe and understand underlying biology of how certain things work. So uh, you know, you'll try to do experiments where you will try to mimic the actual biology as much as possible and try to measure relationships, whatever, to explain certain biologies that you can see or you can measure. Whereas translational biology is try to figure out, you know, whatever you have known and try to replicate that and trigger the same effect every time. Uh, so that means that standardization of your workflow, accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity matters uh, a lot. And the productization or translational research uh, answers the question of how do we make whatever we found in basic research safe enough and good at, uh, enough to use in a clinical settings. Mm-hmm. For knowledge genetics, I guess the, the type of research that we do is more on the translational science part, uh, which is where we take a biomarker, which is something that is measurable in your body. It can be like cholesterol or whatever. In our part, is a genetic biomarker um, and try to sort of make that robust enough and have significant scientific evidence such that doctors can use that to predict something. And in our case, it was the prediction of uh, drug response in the body. And so say you would have like a genetic biomarker that predicts whether or not you will have risk of bleeding if you take this cardiovascular drug. And it was a scientific publication that would publish the statistical significance of this biomarker predicting that thing. Um, But we have to now either create that product, number one, and then making sure that every time you actually... um, Someone has a positive result of, you know, having this genetic biomarker that thing that we're trying to predict is also true. Mm. So that's where the type of research that we kind of do. In the spectrum of like believability in, I guess, like implementing things into the clinical space and what doctors actually use in the medical practice, 
surprisingly doesn't have anything to do whether with whether or not um, most most of the time doesn't have anything to do with whether or not things are well researched or not. It's it has so many other unfortunately. Well, I, it's well, some of the doctors are super interested in data, and those are the doctors that we've kept close and became our key opinion leaders. But there are also doctors who have to unfortunately consider things like, well, this is just the available drug that is out there. Even if I know there's a better drug out there, I, my patient can't pay for it, or mm-hmm. it's not covered by BPJS, or mm-hmm. it's you know like there's not enough um, evidence to show that this is working for the Indonesian community because clinical trials are only being done in the U.S. and the U.K. So all these factors still matter in in a doctor, you know, doing. Or like implementing the type of research that we do or the type of product that we do in their practice. But over time, I think as more people do it, what we've learned is like the doctors believe a lot in guidelines. So if it gets to the level where experts in a country believe that it's has helpful for uh, that their general population, then usually it would be included in the guideline everyone will follow. So getting that um, awareness in the doctor's community from the grassroots level mm. is also very important. Um, but yeah, so in general, I think like we still have to do research and the battle is convincing the doctors and sometimes data helps. I mean, a lot of time data helps a lot, uh, but also at other times we have to sort of help the doctors in figuring out all these other places as well. So in addition to making sure that the product is good enough using this research, we also have to make sure that the price is correct with the willingness to pay, that there is a reimbursement model that we have to think about and how does that actually be being distributed with the pharma companies that are already in the market, you know, all these stuff that we have to help them mm-hmm. such that it's convenient for them to practice personalized medicine. So obviously, that's sort of like the work that Knowledge Genetics have been doing pre-COVID. How difficult has it been trying to pivot to the the time we are in right now, uh, the it COVID era? Was it? I would I would say it wasn't so difficult um, because we kind how of already. Start, how how did the pivot start? Like yeah, be- great question. Yeah, so one day out of nowhere, we we had this one of the we were looking for angel investors a long time ago, and this guy, you know, we're assessing our technology, didn't decide to invest in us, but became sort of you know we we kept in touch and stuff. And out of nowhere, they called us and be like, well, we kind of need this PCR testing thing in this specific hospital. I wanted to come in and assess whether or not they need, you know, they can do PCR testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a time when, you know, Indonesia was... Um, was was not showing any numbers to COVID, right? So I went to the hospital like nonchalantly and be like, yeah, you know, we could do this, we could do that. Um, and then the conversation grew and then we kind of helped them a lot with just setting up the workflow and buying the machines and equipments and uh, ramping up their current infrastructure to something that is uh, that is safe enough and clean enough to actually do 
uh, viral testing or PCR testing for COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and then uh, that was the first project. And then we created a playbook for it that now we use for all the other hospitals. Um, and we also created like a tracking system for inventory. We also helped them with troubleshooting and set it, like training materials also for the labs. And then um, I think you know this guy gave us like more and more projects, and then we started telling our you know friends about it, and then more people came to us, and then. You know, now it's been like a couple of months, and we've been setting up four labs, and hopefully six by the end of this month. So it's been like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been like it's been like a very uh, a very interesting journey, but it it wasn't something that we were seeking out to do. In that way, it was easy, but um, it was challenging in a way where um, it wasn't the main business that we were doing. Um, we've always wanted to not own a lab, so mm-hmm. we've tried, we've done everything, including like developing the genetic tests, manufacturing them, building the software to manage the samples. We built the softwares to create the reports. We did everything outside of running it our own lab. So to like actually create a playbook and train people on how to actually run the lab was was pretty funny in my head and also to of the course. team. We're like, <laughs> dude, we're getting so close to just running our own lab. <laughs> um, it's just you know just a paper that says knowledge genetics will we'll basically do it at this point, but not yet. <laughs> so when you're talking about setting up a lab, um, can you explain for like the common person like? The different kinds of testing. Your kind of PCR testing versus what's the difference between that and antibody tests, or t- and what kind of tests are being done in Indonesia? Right. So in general, a lot of the things that people are doing right now is rapid testing, um, PCR testing, and then there's a whole other class of diagnostics related to CT scan, imaging blood tests that I probably won't go into because mm-hmm. that yeah, would probably be the scope that, of a yeah. doctor. Yeah. yeah. So the rapid test is um, is a test where it measures your um, your bodily response to the virus. So it measures the IgM or antibody uh, for IgM and IgG to, to signify that you have had your the virus in your body and your body is trying to fight it. Mm. And so that's what you're measuring. And these come usually in uh, paper strips. Uh, so it's, it's, and they would have sort of uh, things that can stick to your antibody. And when it sticks to it, it'll have a color reaction. It has a chemistry to actually shows that, oh, there's an, a reaction there and you can see it as a strip there. So it's very similar to a pregnancy test, how it works. Mm. The only thing with these type of testing is that uh, a lot of people have been complaining about the accuracy because of the way that, you know, it wasn't, um, so there's two things of why I feel like there's a lot of misinformation about rapid testing. Mm-hmm. And number one is that related to when the antibody response actually happened versus what you're actually measuring. And number two, related to how the test itself is not so well made. So the first one is that when you get the virus in the beginning, it takes a while for you to have your antibody response. And so you might be walking around thinking that you're healthy, but uh, you're actually spreading a lot of virus to other people. Mm -hmm. And then you'll start getting the symptoms or better or worse, uh, you would not experience any symptom at all. So you don't even know that you have virus in your in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the first min- misinformation. I think a lot of people were very crazy excited in the beginning and didn't know that you know that was the the protocol is to not rely on that completely. Mm-hmm. The second part is that a lot of these manufacturers for rapid testing came initially from China, um, and based on you know our experiences and 
talking to a lot of the manufacturers there. There's a lot of makeshift operations happening. They know that this is a big opportunity. Companies that were traditionally making rapid testing suddenly like shifted their operations to make rapid testing. So they may not be the most experienced or have had enough testing to be able to ensure that all of the batches are good quality, uh, good consistency, and so on and so forth. Quality control aspect. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, you know, if you've read the news in the UK or in other places that, you know, all these big, you know, orders started being returned because they were realizing, hey, this is not as good as we thought it would be. Mm. Um, that's the whole thing about rapid testing. What we do, however, is taking a step back. And so we measure the actual RNA or the genetic material of the virus itself. Mm. So the virus, when it, you know, uh, hits your, um, breathing system i guess is that you know, how often often how you actually get it either your the back of your nose or your throat mm-hmm. um the virus will stick there and they'll try to re- they'll start replicating um and that is what you know the swabs actually try to do is to try to get you know the samples of your thing at the back and then testing whether or not there's virus actual virus in it yeah and um the pcr method is so it, it can detect up to only five copies five viruses literally like five dots in your cell that's that, tiny yeah exactly and it, it's teeny tiny super specific yeah to be able to identify uh, whether or not there's actually a virus in, in your body and that happens even you know much earlier in the process so when antibody maybe happens like the response happens like a week or 10 days or it varies in people this happens in day zero or day uh, minus one even before you've seen any symptoms at all so um so yeah there's a lot less errors in terms of like if it's an because if it's an antibody, then the body needs time to actually develop that. So that's where you're talking about when it it doesn't really help for also the earlier asymptomatic people. So in a way, it's like the way you tested uh, the PCR way was also kind of in line with the your prior business model, which is why it was a natural extension, which is really interesting. Yeah, so the machines that is running COVID-19 is the same machine that we developed um, on the platform that we developed on for our other tests. So we know exactly how they work. We know the the ecosystem, the people who can fix it if it gets broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, yeah, it came a lot more natural. How many people do you think have been tested through like measures that you've helped out with? Um. So a standard lab that we would set up would have the capacity of testing about 80 per day. Um, that's like the minimum capacity and we've been running it for about a month. Mm-hmm. So a thousand, a thousand six hundred. Cool. Um, that's for one hospital. So we're opening up in the next two weeks, like two more. Um, and another one in this uh, mid, mid month. So we'll see, but it's about 80 per day at this point. What is your what what do you think is a healthy goal for a lab to be able to test per day in order to really have a good sense of what's going on um uh, with the with the pandemic? So I would say any type of testing could do. Um as long as you're helping out the uh, diagnosis and it's actually being sent to a centralized reporting system by the government, any number is good. Uh, but they need to be good numbers. They need to be run in a, the right workflow hmm. to make sure that it's not like cross contaminations not happening all the time. You know, all these workflows still need to matter such that the no- any number that you're reporting is, is, is good data. 
But um, in general, a lot of the labs that has been set up by the government are running like thousands of tests like a day. Oh, wow. um, they will be able to. So a lot of the machines that, you know, the government is donating to um, teaching hospitals are at that capacity. We are building something smaller because it's easier to set up. And okay. also it is much faster and for them to basically get trained on it. And if anything goes wrong, we'll still be able to hack it, the hack the workflow, and they'll be able to still run, you know, capacity of testing one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's ways of, you know, scaling up. You can automate the RNA extraction process. You can buy a bigger machine. You can buy multiple machines. You can run multiple workflows at the same time. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get very, very efficient and Thankfully, I think at this point, um, a lot of leading labs and hospitals have really figured that out and then really increased the, increased the capacity by a lot since we first started, like maybe two, three months ago. How much of the testing are done by the government and like hospital supported by the government, how much are private institutions and labs stepping up to help testing and how does that kind of work? So we, I don't actually know the exact number of this, but majority of the testing, I would say is still being done by government hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've received the most help and they should because they are, they, they also are the ones that are funded by the government. So um, they'll be able to run and, scale up these capacitive testing much much you know faster i think where private uh, money or private funders sort of come in is is where the use cases is relevant to them so what the projects that we've done is like they've um, in some islands or some places majority of the people who are living there are working for one or two cor- really big corporation mm-hmm. and um, knowing that they have this thousands of people to take care of they wanted to make sure that they can go back to work safely and they can remain at work safely mm-hmm. and so um, rapid testing was not going to cut it uh, because you know it's good for public health to be able to do tracing and stuff like that but if you're going to see the same people over and over and over again you need to make sure that if someone is sick, you need to be able to take decisive action, quarantine, treat, go back to work, you know, and that needs that workflow needs to be there for a good portion of the time after, uh, you know, during this pandemic and then after. Yeah. And so this would be like clients that have kind of essential businesses. Essential business for the economy, right? Yeah. Not necessarily for the public good, but for the economy. Like these are people who are employing thousands of um, individuals in the workforce, so they need to get that up and running as soon as possible, probably. Absolutely. And I think it's it's kind of goes back to what you're saying, right, Levy? Um, this idea of any amount of testing is better than none. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if we can sort of like democratize and give accessibility of testing to not just the government and the government hospitals, but also to corporations and other places who can still do it, albeit at a smaller scale, it's still better than nothing. Uh, yeah, it, it's the the businesses that we've worked with are, are large employers, basically. So they're mining companies, they're, you know, energy companies that that take a huge chunk of uh, a city or a town <laughs> and uh, becomes the, the main source of livelihood for these places. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I think we've been very, very excited and, and very fortunate to work with these people who 
you know, it's it's real, literally like cut through the bullshit, right? Oh, can I say yeah. that? Mm-hmm. In this oh, part? yeah. Okay. Totally. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and basically the idea is like, you know, we obviously need this. There's no calculation. Um, as long as it makes sense, you know, let's get this project to go. I've never seen projects get rolled out so quickly i've been in the b2b business and like enterprise sales for like a year and a half now You're just like i, I wish every know, day was like this. Would... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then like one time the person was like we should make a whatsapp group together i'm like i teared up dude i was like a whatsapp group from the yeah from the client that's amazing <laughs> so yeah so it was uh, like people really stepped up. I think it, I think it was really cool to see that um, in in general and and being able to see them like make decisions for their workers and their their population of care is just um, and they they're so thoughtful about it. They were you know talking to with us about okay if we were sick and one of our employees are sick like which hospitals can we refer them to how long should we quarantine them like what are the rooms going to look like they talk to us about all these things mm-hmm. and it, it you you can't help but feel you know very optimistic about where this is going when you see all those people that are in charge one thing that i think i talked with my doctor friend of mine is like how people who have money can get tested in Indonesia and yeah like obviously the market's gonna do what the market's gonna do but um do you think that there's such a thing as like people who don't need to be tested you know wanting to be tested or like who should like seek out testing in general so the answer is that a lot of people who can pay will get tested and um, so oftentimes they may not need to get tested. And that's where screening tools work really, really well. And so the screening tool can be like, uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, teleconsultations that you can do with your doctor, or you can actually fill in a questionnaire on whether or not you're actually high risk or low risk. Uh, we're actually working with an institute to try to see if there's an AI algorithm that can screen whether or not you're going to be high risk of you know um, covid versus low risk of covid and that should give a per- people like an answer or at least an ease of mind that sometimes when they're coughing like one two times doesn't always mean they have covid um so i think the the onus is on the market like you said the market is going to do what they're always going to do the onus is now to empower those payers and educate those payers such that they will make the right decisions and when they do get they do decide to get tested they get tested for the right reasons and they're not hogging up the public resources for other people mm-hmm. um, but in general I don't think you know any labs or any hospitals would have the power of jurisdiction or sh- they should actually turn down patients because they think like you know, this patient doesn't deserve to get tested. Um, so nobody's doing that, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just have to be smarter about giving out these tools, making sure that people make that, you know, their their judgments a lot more educated and a lot more measured, let's say. <laughs> that I, It's just like an interesting thing to me to think about and like talk through. Um, just because in my view, is it always true? Like if somebody who doesn't need it is going to take up testing capacity does that mean someone who needs it or is not going to be tested? Right. Because right? there's also an argument to be made 
if you're in South Korea, which was like they're testing everybody in a way, right? So at that point, like, yeah, go get tested because there's enough testing for everybody um, or close to it. So you're exactly right. It's a question of 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 capacity mm-hmm. and how much capacity. It's a limitation. So previously, for example, um, CDC doesn't recommend you know people. With, with no symptoms to get tested, for example. And now they've, you know, laxed the criteria because they know that there's more capacity for testing and therefore people can actually go out and get tested. Um, but in general, I think um, where government can actually utilize or these private labs is that when they offer to pay. And so the government, there's a lot of stimulus packages talking about, you know, giving access for testing. And you can always empower these capa- uh, these testing facilities to actually test COVID labs for everybody if the government pays for it. And so the question is whether or not the public you know, sector will actually take that over. And, and, and so far in Indonesia, um, mostly, you know, it's reserved for public hospitals um, and only specific pockets. Uh, but outside of that, if, you know, people, a lot of the people that we've worked with actually are private testers. And thankfully, it's been you know, specific niches or areas where these corporations actually are little governments in that and area. And they need it so for the essential work, right? Exactly. Um, it's a exactly. different situation. So, yeah, so it's less like emotional debate there or philosophical more like. But but I think, you know, the government can always make use of that uh, once they decide to have this, this package or stimulus package for testing anytime. So it's not that it's the lab's fault. It's actually, you know, the question of like whether or not the government wants to step in and utilize that resource. I feel like, you know, part of the conversation about COVID-19 around the world right now is this idea of like, how do we get enough testing happening in various parts of the world, obviously? How do you see the future of testing, I guess? It's sort of like, what is the new frontier we're going to enter into? Is there going to be like, are we trying to scale up the amount of testing every day? Will more and more companies try to test their workforces? This is a reality that we have to contend with, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so testing is the only way that you can live with the disease um, before, you know, vaccines or like immunity sort of gets introduced. Um, And that is our only way of of sort of like reaching towards normalcy. And it's going to have to be a part of our daily lives in either way that, you know, you need to be able to track, you need to be able to have workflows where this is, um, uh, you know, either the government can can decide whether or not the economy can open up again, or as small scale as whether or not you want to go back to work and someone from your team, you know, can can work from the office or they need to work from home. So mm-hmm. the, the decision making needs to happen, um, and the one way to do that is definitely through testing. And so, um, you know, we've seen different approaches to testing and i think the question is like maybe uh, is there too much testing ever uh, <laughs> i don't know if there was there would be that point but a lot of people have asked us okay well if everyone's building all these like pcr labs like what are what are we going to test for after the covid-19 is done you know mm. we haven't done so many testing previously and so Maybe we are, you know, what, what are, are we gonna just use the, these labs becomes obsolete afterwards? I think that the, so the answer to that is that there's a lot of other things that you can test for. <laughs> 
uh, you know, insert plug over here, and then you can test for under drug responses, infectious diseases, you know, uh, you name it, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the most important point is to make sure that the doctors and the healthcare providers know when to test and, and why. And for COVID-19, it has been so overwhelming in terms of like the amount of knowledge because it seizes up, you know, every, every single, um, providers and frontliners out there. Um, but there's, you know, obviously other types of workflows that need to be treated as seriously and PCR testing or genetic testing can help that too. Um, uh, but, uh, it'll be, it'll also be a testament to how the government and the, uh, the public sector is sort of uh, sending a message and creating these guidelines for the people that they're taking care of. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, delica.id. Music credits to John Dealey, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Broke for Free. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at dialogicapod. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's Steph Tank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again and see you guys next time. Bye!